16. Let's turn there and see what we can find as we take a look at what's taking place with Paul and what's been happening to him. I, I brought my own little special idol along because I thought, you know, it could give me a little support. I was feeling a little bit insecure this morning. So I thought, you know, if I could bring this kind of cute idol. Oh, there's an ant on it. I think it took over. Oh, well. This is an example of when it talks about all the different idols, that would be one of the types that Paul finds himself looking out the window, actually in his case, just looking into the marketplace, and he finds himself staring at all these beautiful but really stupid idols. And the more he looks at them, the more agitated he becomes. And that's where Acts 17 begins. You got to happened to us and what's happened to to Paul here. He's gone through all the issues, the prison, you know, miraculous earthquake, people coming to Christ, chased out of Thessalonica, uh, people angered him in Berea. They brought him over here and it's about a two week journey. It's about two week journey to get to where he's at now in a town that we're familiar with because we do the Greek thing around here. It's called Athens. Okay, can you say it? Say Athens. Okay, so you know where Athens is. At. You start going, hold it. Athens, it had all these neat things. Yeah, but this is kind of, this is later on after its great times. It's about, uh, actually, a couple hundred years past its great times. So it's fallen down a bit, but it's still pretty much the religious and intellectual capital of the area. So it's where the intellectuals and the fruits and the nuts and all those come. That's where they, they come to Athens. Athens is the place where everybody talks but doesn't do much of anything. Okay? That's what Athens is. So it gives you a picture. It's a big think tank. It's a religious group. It's multiple uh, schools of thoughts. Uh, think of anything from questionable seminaries to uh, various schools of uh, how do I do this or how do I do that? You begin to get the picture here. This, this is an unusual town. It's kind of a college town feel. So get that idea in your head. But it has a lot of these older professors that are a bit on the crazy side. Okay? You, you, and they're running the town. So they're running the whole town. Paul shows up. He's been on the road for two weeks. It's now been about two years. Do you realize that? It's been two years for this journey alone. Since he left Jerusalem, about two years in, he's sitting down and he's getting a bit tired, guarantee it. He's starting to go, boy, you know, Lord, I didn't expect it to be two years. And now I'm in Athens and I'm all alone. Luke, Timothy, Silas. They're all back in Berea. They haven't left yet. And Paul, as his escorts leaving me, says, go back and tell them to come and join me. So think this is the time. It's not like today. Go back and tell them to join me. How long does it take them to go back? About two weeks. And then it's going to take another two weeks here. So Paul's sitting down, been here. He may have been here for a week or two. And I envision Paul, it's going to tell us in the next chapter, beginning to mend some nets. 
Okay, beginning to work on some people's tents. He's a, a leather maker, a mender of things. And this is what he does for his part-time job. This is how he makes some income so he's not dependent on the churches to provide for him as he first of all comes in. Because what happens, everybody says, the same thing we say today. They say, you know, you're just all about the what? Money, exactly. See, you got that, yeah. So he's not going to give him that shot. He's saying, no, I'm not going to ask for any money. We're going to lead you to the Lord, understand who he is, and I'm going to walk away without ever asking you for a cent. You're not going to be able to use that line on me. Not going to happen. So now Paul is working on tents, doing whatever here. Um, as I said, it's, he's done this long walk of 250 miles from Berea into here, and he's beginning to say, wow, okay, Lord, what's up? You can feel, if you read through this, you can begin to feel the fatigue in Paul. And so he's sitting there and says, he starts to get irritated because he looks off to the side and he sees this idol. And he looks over there and he sees another idol and another idol and another idol. And, another, and he's trying to work and he's just getting more and more agitated and irritated. He's going, there's all of these gods, but there's no God anywhere. Everybody's without any hope, without any sense of purpose, without any plan, without any direction in their life. They're lost people who are traveling in a circle as they seek God without finding him. They just keep coming back to the same spot over and over and over again. If you've ever been lost in wilderness areas, that's what happens. You show back up and you realize I'm back where I started. How did I get here? You're just going in a circle. And that's what's happening to all these people in relationship to God. They're seeking God, but they're not finding him. They're just going in a big circle. And it continues to get worse and worse. They're like hamsters in their cage that zips around as they're, they're fired up and they're zipping around. And the cage is moving really, really fast. Where are they going? Nowhere. And Paul is frustrated. He sees it. He understands it. He's just tired. I'm trying to deal with this stuff here. I'm all alone. And finally, it says he gets exasperated in chapter 17. He uses that term later about parents of your children. Don't exasperate your children. So he's exasperated. He's, he's just so irritated. It. It's Saturday, so he says, I've had it. And he heads off to the synagogue. He says, it goes off to the synagogue and the God-fearing Greeks. When Verse 17 of chapter 17. Then he goes to the marketplace. He says, day after day with whoever happens to be there. And it's a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they begin to dispute him in relationship to his understanding of who God is. So to get this grasp here, I want you to understand. Athens is named after the Greek goddess Athena. It had two primary philosophies. One was Epicurean philosophy. The other one was Stoic philosophy. Those are the two primary philosophies that basically everyone followed after, except for the unusual off-the-wall guys, and there were a lot of those, to be truthful. Now, Epicureanism is the concept that pleasure is the end result of man. There's the chief end of man. It's the chief intention of man was happiness, happiness. Or pleasure. Now, it's not just talking about selfish pleasure. It's talking about pleasure in general. It could be pleasure in terms of taking care of others. There's a variety of positive ideas here. But it was still about the chief end of man was to bring about pleasure. You would find similar concept to that in Ecclesiastes. Okay, when he says, under the sun, about all you got is eat, drink, and be merry. 
because tomorrow you die. And that's Ecclesiastes. So that's what, this is Epicurean philosophy. It also felt that everything happened by chance. There was no reason for anything happening. And that death was the end. That when you died, it was over. You go back into the dust. And then lastly, that God or gods, whoever they might be, were totally remote from this world. They were just remote. From, they had nothing to do with this world. They put it into play and then they walked away. They're not interested. They're like a, a, a parent who, you know, sticks you in a hot car and says, if you get out, you get out. If you don't, you don't, whatever. That's the picture. They don't care. God doesn't care. That's the picture. That's the first one. The second thing, stoicism. This was a concept we would refer to as pantheism today. Everything is God and God is everywhere. Everything is God and God is everywhere. He put a spark. See, God is a fire and he put a spark of life in every person. And that spark, that force, if we went into the Star Wars game, okay, that force is what ignites you and allows you to exist and be in terms of life. But when you die, that spark goes back to God and then he distributes it to somebody else when they're born. That's that circular picture. If you start to walk through this, you see this circle. It's a hamster game. They're just going around and around and around, and they're getting faster and faster, but they're not getting anywhere. Nothing in actuality is happening. So some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And the, the word babbler, they're saying that who is this dingbat? Who is this dumb guy? Who is this something other than Epicurean and Stoic philosophy presentation? Who is this guy? Why do we care? And as they began to talk to him, it says, you know, he actually seems to be advocating foreign gods or a whole different idea of who God is. Well, this is interesting. Let's bring him to the Areopagus. Areopagus was the group of the leaders of men who would put into play and put their stamp of, yeah, this is a, this is a great religious idea. You guys should go, list, go to his school and listen to him. So Paul shows up to this Areopagus group, and that's what he wanted to do all along. He wanted to get into this position. So he's in this position. After he's in this position with all these intellectual thinkers, these philosophers of the day, he says, okay, finally, I got here to the big wigs. Now I'm going to share with them the truth of who God is. Is And he begins to do just that. He says, what's this new teaching they're presenting? Some strange ideas. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. All right? So these circle believers is what I call them. They just keep going in a circle. They believe, but they're just going in a circle. They're not getting anywhere, not doing anything. Paul responds to them and he says, hold it. Let me talk to you about this unknown God that you spoke of here, this this unrecognizable. No, not at all. He's very recognizable. This unknown God has actually come here to speak to each one of you personally. However, there are requirements for you to get to know him. Specific requirements to get personal with God. If you really want to know God, then first of all, you must know his son. You must know his son because his son came here to speak to us for some three and a half years involved in the ministry. And Paul at this time, it doesn't tell us all in this section, walks through with them this understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. He stood up in the media and said, men of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. You're circle believers. 
You have religious concepts and ideas, but you're not getting anywhere. As I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So religion, Paul begins to say here, you're very religious, but religion will not bring you to the place where you can come close to God. Religion does not make us close to God. It never will. It never has. And he's saying it's a hamster in a cage. It's you trying to do better and better and better. And then maybe God will say, okay, I'm going to give you an audience. Religion will not give you an audience with God. No matter how many things you do for God, that will not bring you into an audience with God. It won't happen. Religion is all about doing things, doing things to get God's attention. Christianity is about God having done things for you so that he can get your attention. And this is a huge change in view because it's not about how good do I have to be to get to God. Instead, it's how good is God that he's willing to come to you and share with you the truth of who he is. See, he sent his son. That's what we're trying to say. God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to give you an opportunity to have a relationship with him. You're not going to be accepted by God through your religious stuff that you're doing, your ideas, your thoughts, or your actions. You will only become accepted by God by responding to his instructions to you in relationship to what's going on. You see, Christianity is about what God has done to make us worthy. He has paid the problem price and provided us with forgiveness. That when we fall into areas of disgust and sinfulness, he has provided us with a way to move away from that darkness and move into the light and gain forgiveness. He says, if God remains unknown to you, then you're missing out on what you were created. God wants us to know him. He doesn't want us to do stuff for him. He wants us to know who he is and what's taking place here. He says, you're worshiping an unknown God. It's just a force that you think you have to reckon with. But do you really want to know him? Paul does it further for us. And that's why I'm going to do a, another text to help us get a handle on this. It's in Colossians where he talks about who Jesus is. And that's what he's sharing with these guys here in this situation. He's saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the icon of God. He's God's picture ID confirming who he is. If you reached into your wallet and you pulled out your ID, you'd have a picture on it that looks somewhat like you. Mine's 10 years old. I was cuter then. Eh? Things have changed. But that's all right. So that is my image. He's saying... Jesus is the image of God. He is God's picture ID to us. You're no longer able to say, I don't know who God is. He stood up and said, I am God in a bod. That's what he said. I'm God in a body. I took on this body to express to you the reality of who God is. Not the facial ID. But the actual action ID, so everything I do is a reflection of God himself. Everything I say 
is a clarification of who God is. You get pulled by the police. They pull out his ID. It says, I am God. He goes, they go, no, there's no way. You're not God, dude. Check my DNA. Check my DNA. So we go, okay. How, so they say, okay, we'll check out his DNA. So Jesus said, to see me is to see God. To honor me is to honor God. To be around me is to know God. And then he begins to do all the things that only God can do. He heals. He brings the sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He takes five fishes and two loaves of bread and feeds thousands of people. In other words, he recreates all of creation itself. He makes food instantly. Far better than the chef process. Watch all these chef food. Do you guys watch many chef food network stuff? My kid's really into it. I'm having to watch it. It's like, okay, when did the sports start? When did the sports start? You get the food network. He's the ultimate chef because not only does he make it perfect, he makes it instantly. And he says, look at me. Look at what I've done. I am the Logos. I am the Word, the message of God itself. So when he uses this term, uh, refers to him as, as the Logos, what he's saying is that he's divine reason. He is wisdom. He is understanding. He's comprehension. He's insight. He's, the word I like and all you know, perspicacity. He is all that is. He's the one who gives you the ability to think so that you can respond to him and recognize who he is. He is Logos. He is 100% God in a bod. But more than that, he, he metamorphosized himself and became a man. He was able to leave his realm of heaven and take on the nature of a man. Just as you see in metamorphosis a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, the caterpillar changes its nature. Now it flies before it crawled. And its form, beautiful butterfly, ugly caterpillar, but not its identity. You could still write the butterfly a thank you card for the birthday present he gave you when he was a caterpillar. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. I've always been God. What I did is I did the opposite. I became a caterpillar. So I could respond to you and help you see who God was. And then the resurrection, I returned to my butterfly position. I always was, but now I returned to that amazing position. The amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't walk up and rip off his shirt and have a big G underneath. God, <gasps> you know, suddenly and then flies off and then comes back. You know, it's not that Messiah picture that we get as Superman. Instead, Jesus says... Everything I say is being said on the basis of what God has told me to say. Everything I do is being done on the basis of what God told me to do. Everything that happens here is God himself working through me. He could do the same thing through you. And that's why Paul and Peter and all these other guys do the same miracles that Jesus was doing. Because it's God doing through them. What he has chosen to do. So Paul begins to introduce Jesus as God to these people. Who he is, what he's done. And he finalized with the resurrection proving that he was God. He rose from the dead and they said, you're crazy. You're in a loon, Paul. 
No, I'm not. He really did rise from the dead. Now, I thought here, okay, this introduction, he became flesh and blood among us. We saw the glory of the one full of grace and truth. And you begin to understand that being religious doesn't get us close to God. And I thought, you know, when you introduce Jesus, who he was, Paul does his introduction thing. But I had this fun thing. It was an introduction by someone entirely different. It was named Steve Harvey. And Steve Harvey introduced Jesus in a different way. Let's watch it and have a little bit of fun just for a minute here. As he is God's son, you have to believe the truth that he shared with us concerning his son. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything. He created everything. Whatever forms of microevolution may exist, the raw materials all came from God. If things start off as a mass of swirling gases, what was the source of the gases? God created this world and all that is in it. He created man in his own image. Then man fell away from God through disobedience. God provided a way to bring back that relationship with him. He longs he longs to have a relationship with all people. God wants to have a relationship with me, and he wants to have one with you. He wants to interact with you on a consistent, regular basis. And as the creator of all things, he has the authority over man and over all things. He's the source of everything. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Every single thing, all authority. We go, oh, Paul is sharing the wonder of who Jesus is and what God has done, that he is the creator of all. In this case, in the Colossians section, there was a belief that angels were superior to man because they're stronger, they live forever, they're intelligent. You can see where they come up with that idea. And he breaks down this picture when he says all things were created by him, whether thrones in heaven or powers or rulers or authorities. Those were the different levels of the angels. And he's trying to say, Hey, Jesus is far greater than any angel ever thought of being. So Paul is pointing out the superiority. Then he goes on to say, in him, all things hold together or are put together. He's the head of the body, the church, for he's the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, making him supreme in everything as a result. This is an interesting aspect here. He's trying to say that. Jesus was the beginning. He's the first one in human nature to defeat death. That's what he meant by he's the beginning. He said he resurrected from, he defeated death entirely. He's the first one to defeat it forever. There's other people that have been brought back from the dead. Jesus himself brought somebody else back, but they died later. Jesus came back from the dead, was resurrected, had a brand new body, and he lives forever. And that's the cry of what he's trying to say. He's the head over the old creation and the new creation. He's the principle of cohesion. This God particle that holds all the atoms together in our existence. So we're beginning to understand that as we study physics. We go, hold it. When I look at you, I'm seeing a series of atomic particles gathered together in some way and manner. Some more dense than others. Some bigger, some smaller. And I go, okay. It says Jesus holds us all together. I'd like for him to take apart certain parts of me, like right down here. If he could take apart some of that, I'd be a happy guy. 
you know, remove this, Lord. But he doesn't choose to do that. You see, Jesus is this remarkable power. He is this source of being. Yes, he is the source that holds everything. But far more than that, he's not just a source. He's not just an idea. He's just not a thought. He's a particular person over all creation. So he says he is the head. He's the one who goes before us and leads us to victory in life. He shows us how to do it. He says, you are a new creation in Christ. You've become brand new. And Christ is the head, the the kepha is the word used here, of this new body of Christ. It's more than just leader. It's the entire source of all things. This new body, this kingdom of God that exists here. We have the kingdom of God existing here that Jesus leads and directs. And when we become a part of it and start acting like it, we get to experience what it is. We're in the boat and the boat's moving in the position and the place that God desires for us to move. For many of us, the problem is this. We move out of the boat. We become Christians. We give our life to Christ, but then we begin to renege. We start to say, you know, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to be involved in this turning around process. Instead, I'm going to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. And then we experience this, I call it out of boat experience. The boat being Jesus and his kingdom. Outside of the boat is the crisis and the difficulties and the struggles that we're having going, why is this happening to me? I say, well, sometimes it's because you're outside of the will of God. You chose to be. And so you experience the results of that. Or the way I sometimes put it here, and many of you quote me, you made your bed, you lie in it. Jesus wants to make your bed for you. He wants to show you how it's supposed to, with your finances, with your family, with your faith, with your friends. But if you choose not to, then you get to experience being out of the boat. Being out of the boat. See, that kingdom of God is this gigantic ship. That we all get to live on and enjoy what God has in mind for us. And at the same time, we're interacting back and forth with the world we live in. But we always get to go back to the ship where the head is directing and guiding. And that's what he's talking about. This wondrous Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he wants to do for us. He's the reconciler for all creation and all creature. He reconciles our struggles. See, when we're within the boat, we have this wondrous, incredible, marvelous thing called forgiveness. And forgiveness is God saying, I got you covered. When you stay in the boat, and that's why Paul talks about this, if you want to be personal with God, you have to be involved in repentance. That Jesus, as as the peacemaker, isn't enough. Jesus is the peacemaker, isn't enough. Jesus is the reconciler, isn't enough. Yes, God cares about you. Yes, God wants and desires to be personal in your life. But more than that... He wants to lead your life. He has shown us what God is like and how we can respond to him. You see, getting personal with God requires knowing and believing the truth about his son. He wants us to know him. He wants to share with us who he is and what he's all about. But if we're unwilling to repent, and that's why Paul goes into this, he says, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has said and set aside a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, repentance is our action, saying we were wrong and seeking to no longer act in that manner. I said, I want to live this way, not that way. Repentance is about changing the way we live. 
Forgiveness is God's reaction to our repentance. We repent, say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And then he enables us to live differently. Now, what happens to some of you, myself included, is sometimes I'll go, oh, well, thank you so much. God has set me free. I'm free now. I have forgiveness. I take of this wondrous time in the Lord's Supper. And then I go, Lord, I'm going to use this freedom to go back to do what I was doing before. And God says, leave, get in the boat. Get in the boat. I'm going, well, Lord, I I want to experience what it's like over here. He says, it's not a good experience. You don't want to do that. Get in the boat. Use your freedom to get back in the boat. He says, I've forgiven you. I've got you covered. Don't go back the way you were. Become who you can be now. Turn to the person next to you and say, God's got you covered. God's got you covered. See, that's the covering of the blood of Christ, the covering of the power of God. It's the co- that's what's so incredible about us. It isn't about what I've done or what I haven't done. It's about God's response to me. He says, if you repent, I will cover you over. I will provide you with the ability to live life and to get into my boat, into my ship, into my kingdom, and to live in such a way that everything changes. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, every struggle. That's what it's about, folks. That's what Paul is trying to tell him. He's saying, hey, everybody, it's personal. It's very, very personal. One-on-one, God wants to get with you, and then he wants all of us corporately to be on his ship. So he says, now he has reconciled you by Christ's flesh and blood His body through death in order to make you holy without blemish, free from accusation in his sight. If you continue in your faith, that is, not moved from the hope held out by the gospel, God's got you covered. Dave was just here in Mexico. That was the cry in Mexico. He was trying to tell these guys, tell these women, God's got you covered. And when they discover it, they go, whoa, this is incredible. And he grabs a hold of us and he renews our hope. And life becomes meaningful as he reconciles us completely and totally. He says, listen, God says, this is my son. We're empty inside unless we're filled with something from the outside. And God is saying, I got you covered. I will fill you with what you need to live life to be able to be loved and to love, to feel secure and accepted. Not to expect this idol to go, oh, I'm so happy you're with me. It's so good to have you near me. It's in my backyard in the dust, actually. Someone gave it to me. I'm not sure if it's a she or a he, but it's great idol, right? You see, God is saying, this is silly. This is crazy. This is stupid. I've got you covered. Come to me. Experience what I have for you. When you're reconciled with God, He heals our emotional hurts. He begins to teach us how to love with encouraging and enabling love. Who is this Jesus, this exclusive Savior? He's God in a body. Come down to give us life. I was recently at the hospital and a young man had some liver issues. Just was born, has jaundice, and it's got this yellowing. And the doc says, not a problem. All we have to do is put him under a certain light. The light will take care of it. 
The, the body will respond to it. He'll be fine. person said, I don't want to do that. Well, what do you want to do? Well, maybe we can bleach him. Bleach him? No, no, no. You've got to understand. I have all these degrees. I have all this understanding. I have all this. You just need to put him under the light. I don't want to do that. God is saying, you just need to get under the light. It's that easy. But then you've got to stay there. And I will cleanse you and make you whole again. As we share in this kind of final time of the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus has covered us and given us life. And meaning and purpose and understanding and all these things we desperately want that will never happen through an idol or some kind of force representation. It's a real God who made us in his image, who is like us, who calls to us and says, I want you to experience life and hope and meaning and faith and peace. Why? Would you not? Why would you not? Let's all stand together. I want you to go side to side. I want you to come down and take a bit of bread and a little bit of juice.